Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. And a kind of early happy Christmas to you. It's so nice to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, do you want to turn to Luke chapter 2? Luke chapter 2. Uh, it's a, a, good, a good Christmas story, but I want us to look at a person, or a couple of people actually, who we don't normally look at this time of year, uh, even though they're a big part of the Christmas story. Uh, but before that, I want to introduce you to my son Samuel. He's three and a half, and here he is dressed as a Christmas elf. Because why wouldn't you dress your child as a Christmas elf? We actually spent about an hour trying to get him to get this costume on. He had to go through various Spider-Man costumes before he put it on. Um, but this December, like a lot of probably parents with young children, we've been reading the Christmas story to him as he's going to bed. And as we're doing that, he's picking up a lot of the things that children usually pick up in the story about, you know, sort of animals and stars and all of that jazz. But he's, the thing he's noticed a lot and keeps saying when we're reading the story without being prompted is he keeps saying it's an angel. It's another angel. It's another angel. And he's done it so much it's become a bit of a running joke in the family. And he's now doing it in normal life and just sort of pointing at things going, it's another angel. Here he, another angel. And he seems to be quite, I guess, preoccupied with the way that the kids' Bibles and the nativity calendars, advent calendars, draw out the number of angels in the story. And that's kind of how they how they narrate the narrative, isn't it? It's sort of the big spectacular things. Look, something you've never seen before. And it's kind of obvious why they do that, because there are a lot of angels in the, in the Bible and in this bit of scripture. And they're also quite spectacular and quite interesting for children. So I can see why they do that. But the interesting thing is how when you read the text of the Bible, you actually don't find that much attention drawn to look at all of these different angels. The angels really are there, mainly just to serve the people. The thing that the writers are generally doing is to draw attention to say, look, here's another person. Here's another person. Here's another person responding to the birth of Jesus. And a lot of those individuals are people that around this time of year, even though they're right in the story, get forgotten. They're not people we typically put on our calendars. They don't feature in our nativity stories. I went to a nativity just the other day. My son was in it. There are only two named people, apart from baby Jesus, in this nativity, Mary and Joseph. And there's a clump of shepherds and a clump of wise men, but there's only two people with names in the whole thing. That's not how the gospel writers tell the story at all. So you have Matthew gives us over 50 names before he gives us the birth of Jesus, before we meet any angels. Right? Luke structures his whole story in sort of quite extended chunks of looking at the reactions of a whole bunch of different people, often actually very ordinary people, responding to the birth of Jesus. And so if you read Luke's account, chapters 1 and 2, it's a long section in which Luke says, look, well, here's, here's Zachariah responding to what's going to happen. Here's Mary responding to what's... Here's Elizabeth. And then here's Mary again, and then here's Zachariah again, and then here's Joseph, and then here's Simeon, and then here's Anna. And there's all of these people, some of whom a lot of people in our society wouldn't even know who they are. And it's as if Luke is saying, look, here's another person, and there's another person, there's another person. Look at all these people responding and expressing awe and amazement at what God has done in Jesus Christ. And that's the way their stories work, even though our stories tend to go, it's another spectacular thing. Often the gospel writers are saying, have a look at these ordinary people. Have a look at how what Jesus is going to do affects them. And these people are very ordinary in so many ways. The couple who thought they'd never have children. The old boy who sees Jesus and says, oh, now I can die happily because I've seen what I came for. The 84-year-old widow who's been praying 
for decades. They'd, these are very ordinary characters who in any other version of the story, we wouldn't know who they were. And Luke wants us to see how Christmas affects ordinary people. People like me, actually. People, Jewish versions of people like me and people like you. People for whom the spectacular things, don't. of course they don't happen every day, but they're not the focus. The focus is on how who Jesus is will change everything for ordinary people. One of them is named Simeon. Another one is named Anna. And we're going to read their stories now in Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what's said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't see death and before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She didn't depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of God. I love the way Simeon responds to the birth of Jesus. I find him actually one of the most relatable characters in all of the, all of the New Testament. I find him one of those people who I can, I can get in his shoes in a way that I can't get in the shoes of quite a few of the other human beings in the story because of the very strange things that happen to them. So I find it very difficult to imagine what it's like to have an angel appear in my kitchen and tell me that I'm going to carry the Son of God in my uterus. Frankly, I find it hard to imagine having a uterus, so I don't really get very far down that track. But I find the whole idea of like, what would it be like to be her, Mary, that is, very, very strange. And I find it's quite a difficult thing to get into the mindset of someone who's had that happen. I can't particularly be, imagine being a fiancé of somebody who is pregnant but claims that she hasn't slept with anybody. And I certainly can't imagine believing her if that's what she said. So I find the idea of believing myself to be Joseph a little bit difficult. 
I can't put myself in the place of the wise men either. I, I can't imagine really what it's like to see a sign. And this doesn't happen in 21st century London. I've seen a st- sign in the stars. I'm now going to travel for weeks and weeks to a completely foreign country to find out what it means. I can't imagine what it's like to encounter an angelic choir filling the sky while I'm out in the fields watching sheep. But I can imagine this. I can relate to Simeon and I can relate to Anna. And you probably can as well, because we know what it's like, no matter how old or young we are, to spend a very, very long time waiting for something that finally arrives and we go, oh, it's finally here. All is well with the world. I, can, I felt that. I know what that's like. I might not have felt it to the same degree or in the same, with the same significance, but I can relate to that experience in a way that I can't relate to many of the others. I can imagine that if I had waited for decades for the coming of Jesus, having been told that I wouldn't die until Jesus came, I'd react like this. I would react like a man saying, I can, I can die happily. The thing that I've been waiting for my whole life is here, and now I can rest in peace. So I think of Simeon as a man with one thing on his bucket list and one thing only. I don't know if you have a bucket list. I, I don't, I suppose... Maybe at 41, people aren't really supposed to develop them. I'm not sure. But I don't know how many things would be on a bucket list if you had to make one. If I knew that I only had six months to live, what would I want to have achieved in six months? And you get those books, don't you? A thousand and one places to see before you die. I'm not going to get around a thousand and one. But Simeon is a man with only one. He's like, there is only one thing that I want in order to be able to die happily, but I desperately want it because I've been told by God that I'm going to see it. Verse 26, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't see death until he'd seen the Lord's Christ. I'm going to see the Messiah before I see the grave. I know that because God's told me so. I'm going to wait and wait and wait and hang in there and pray and trust and hope and long for that day because when that day comes, I'll be able to say, okay, now I can go in peace, but I'm not ready to die until I've seen that. Imagine how you would feel. Maybe some of you have this actually, that you've been living for years in the hope of one fulfilled prophetic word. But how would you feel if on the how would you feel on that day, if one day it suddenly comes true? Kind of out of nowhere, somebody walks in and gives you the thing, or sends you an email confirming the thing, or takes you to the place where something happens. And imagine how you'd feel if having stored up all of this hope, focusing on just one event, how you would feel and how you would celebrate on the day that it came. That's how Simeon feels here. Verse 27, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. I can go. I can die happily. The thing I've been waiting for all this time is here and now I'm done. There's nothing left for me to hope for because this is the best it could ever be. Lord, thank you for answering your word. I only wanted one more thing in my life and now here he is. I can depart in peace. I think of Simeon like Rafiki. You know Rafiki, the character at the start of The Lion King? I don't know if you've seen the movie or the live-action recent movie or the musical or none of the above, in which case you probably haven't lived, but you've probably come across the idea that at the very beginning of the movie, all of creation is gathered round and 
sort of an Elton John song is building in the background and the elephants and the leopards and all of the characters are coming, you know, sort of gathering round and then out onto the centre of Pride Rock comes this old, I'm going to, is he a baboon? I think he's probably a baboon. He looks like one to me, uh, holding a little lion cub. And then in front of the whole of creation, as they all bow down in front of him, he just lifts the child up and sings, And then it goes, You know that moment, right? Everyone knows that moment. And I feel like Simeon is a little bit of a Rafiki figure here. Because, of course, he's presenting a small baby. So that's the story I think of. I'm just a little childish. And I read Simeon and I think, yeah, you remind me of that, that old monkey lifting up a baby high in the air. And when my first son was born, I wanted to do the same thing. Um, because who, who doesn't? You just sort of wanted to stand up on the stage and present your child. And then I looked it up. What it means in Koza, is that, did I get that right? That's not quite how you're supposed to say it. But Koza, or whatever the, the uh, Southern African language that it's sung in, I looked up, what is the translation of this phrase? And I thought, I can't use that, because it means, here comes a lion, Father. Oh, yes, here he comes. My wife is not going to be very chuffed if that's what I sing as my son is arriving into the world, and I can't really sing it over him as I present him to the church either. But then, I think about Simeon, in his case, and I think about Simeon, who knows the book of Isaiah very well. He's quoting it right here. And so he knows about the promises of God, about who this baby is going to be. He knows Genesis, in which this baby is described as the lion that's going to come from Judah. And then I think, wow, there is powerful significance to an old man lifting up a baby and saying, here comes a lion, Father. Oh, yes, here he comes. So I think of Simeon like a Rafiki figure who, whether that reference is intentional or not, I imagine it isn't, is lifting up and heralding the arrival of a new world because there is a new king and saying, Father, here comes the lion. Oh yes, here he is. And I think that helps me understand what it's like to be him and also why at that point he feels I can die happily now because I've seen what I've been living for. So I think of Simeon like Rafiki. I think of Simeon like my grandpa. So that's a slightly different option here. My, my grandpa lived um, to be, you know, he was in his 70s when he died. He lived a, a full life. He'd seen a lot of life. He'd sort of, he'd run a business. He'd run a charity. He was, you know, the big thing in his life was the war. He won a military cross in the war and then probably saw a lot of pretty awful things. A lot of people near him get shot and, you know, seen, has seen life like a lot of people of that generation have and did. But very late in life, in the last five or so years of his life, he came to know the Lord. And it made a remarkable difference to his perspective on the world around him in a lot of ways. And he wrote a number of, uh, wrote a number of letters and emails around the family as he was in his last few months and years. In, and in one, of, one of them was read out at his funeral. I remember thinking how very Simeon-like it is. But he just wrote this beautiful thing where he said, As I look around the world around me now, I can see nothing but beauty. And it was a very moving moment when his son, my uncle, read that out at the funeral. Everyone was crying. And it just sort of, as he read this quite long paragraph about the goodness of God and the beauty of the world that he could see, as if he'd lived his whole life really striving and wanting something. And then in the last few months and years before he died, he found it. And he found the delight that there is in God and the perspective change that comes from seeing the goodness in the world. And it just made all the difference to him. And he was effectively saying, I can now depart in peace. I've seen what I came for. I have seen the goodness of God and the beauty of what he has done in the world. 
and it means I can die happily. And I think of Simeon like that, really saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. I feel like the thing I've come for is here. So I think of Simeon like Rafiki, and I think of Simeon like my grandpa. And I think of Simeon like Nelson Mandela. Imagine waiting for that many years, many of them in prison, waiting for a day when hope will come and everything will change. And imagine living thinking, I can see this in my mind's eye. I'm trusting it will happen. That's what gives me strength to hang in there. But of course, I'm, I, I could be wrong. I, I'm, I'm waiting on this whole time, hoping it will happen. But I don't know for certain that it will. But I'm just going to trust that it will because I believe that's my destiny. A day is going to come when change will happen and turn everything upside down. And then imagine how you'd feel when it finally did come. And I don't know about you, but my impression of Nelson Mandela, well, the thing that often struck me about him when he was alive was that in, his, in late life, which is, of course, all I remember of him anyway, because I was a teenager and apartheid ended, I, uh, I was just so struck by the fact he was always smiling, like wherever he was. He didn't seem to matter what was going on. He just seemed to have this kind of almost like serene jolliness about him that meant he was just continually smiling. And I thought of that as I was thinking through the person of Simeon again and thinking if you live to be an old man who has lived all of their life with their hope pinned on one thing happening and then it does you just spend your life thinking you can let your servant depart in peace the day that he'd anticipated for so long was finally here and so you can imagine him saying something a little bit like my eyes have now seen salvation that have been prepared beforehand in the presence of all the people so I think of Simeon a bit like Nelson Mandela. I think of Simeon a bit like John Newton, the, uh, the man who was a slave trader for many years and then was captured as a slave himself, came to faith in Christ, had a radical conversion experience, wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, obviously fought against the slave trade in his later life, realized the, the terrible things he'd done, campaigning against it. And then he finally lives to see the slave trade abolished at age 82 on the 25th of March, 1807. And later that year, he dies. He's like, I'm done. My chains are gone. I've been set free. You know, I, I was blind and now I can see. And he like, it's like he finally saw the thing that having lived with the guilt of what he'd done, he had then campaigned for so long against, he finally sees it done and then dies happily and thinks, yes, God, I, my eyes have seen salvation. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Actually, yesterday was the 212th anniversary of John Newton's death. And, but it happened just after, with a few months after the slave trade was abolished. And so I think, I think about all of these, if you like, these four old men, Rafiki, my grandfather, Nelson Mandela, John Newton, and I think about them dying with a, effectively with a sense of happiness that I've now seen what I came for, that this moment of hope has come and it's changed everything. So if it helps you, I think of Simeon as a weird combination of a president, a hymn writer, a baboon, and my grandpa, which is a slightly odd amalgam, but that's how I think of him. But the thing is, of course, that all of those individuals were captured, captivated by something that ultimately wouldn't change the world forever. Sadly, we may say, but they ultimately didn't. Now, praise God for the end of apartheid. But racism is still a problem. 
South Africa still has a lot of challenges. Praise God for the abolition of the slave trade. But slavery itself lasted for decades after the trade was abolished. And of course, in some ways, it still flourishes today around the world. Praise God for my grandpa coming to faith and finding joy everywhere. But people still get old and die and people still cry at his funeral and there's still sadness around and the world isn't just beauty. Do you see, all of these people effectively pin their hope and in a good way lived for something good to happen. But ultimately, the day that they lived to see didn't effectively turn the world upside down and change everything. But Simeon is rejoicing over something that actually did turn the world upside down and change everything. A child whose arrival was not just another turn in the circle of life, but something that was going to overthrow the circle of sin and death and sin and death that has been going on for thousands of years. He was holding the hope of the world in his hands. He was actually holding somebody who was going to change everything. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And no darkness can put out that light. Actually, darkness often has snuck in and crept in, even amongst those older saints who have died and said, now I can die happily. There is still something of the thing that they've lived for, the thing, the moment they hoped for, that the next generation may see fade or even get completely overrun. There are moments, we had one in our country just last week, where a whole load of people say, this has changed everything. And of course... We know, well, it's changed some things, but it hasn't changed everything. It hasn't brought salvation to the world, light to the Gentiles, glory to your people Israel. And that both is a challenge, it's a sadness, but it's also something that puts in perspective the depth and significance of what Simeon was praising God for that day. You see, when you and I achieve things that we've lived for and fought for for many years, they are never quite the game changers that we hoped. I don't mean that in a defeatist way. I want to live for things anyway. I want to pursue things with ambition in God. But I know that ultimately, even when I get them, there will always be something else to do. So I also like to think of Simeon like another older gentleman I remember reading about. He was a, a Welsh rugby fan as a teenager and reflecting back on what it was like to be a teenager when he was an old man. And this guy's telling a story about when he said, when I was a teenager... I, I met, I had this big hero, a sort of sporting hero, was a Welsh rugby player who I had this massive amount of admiration for. I had posters of him in my room. I had his autograph, a rugby ball sign, all that stuff. I really, I, I just found him such, he was, I hero worshipped him, as a lot of young men do with sporting figures or whatever it may be. And he's, uh, he's looking back on that story and then he says this. He said, then, when I was about 14 years old, I got to know my hero personally. He was a keen angler, you know, fishing, and I used to go fishing with him. On these occasions, I was able to observe him from an entirely different viewpoint, and I got to know the man and not merely the image. And then he says, and the nearer I got, the smaller he became. And that happens if you know, if you've met people who you have idolized, one of the things that happens is after a short while you begin to realize that they're not quite what you hoped they were and the closer you get the smaller they become and then he continues but God eventually led that downcast hero the downcast schoolboy to a new hero and I have walked with my Jesus for 35 years now 
In that time, I've often disappointed him, but he has never disappointed me. I have got to know him better and better. And the nearer I get to Jesus, the bigger he becomes. People often talk about things, people, events, achievements, elections, experiences, as if they are the thing that will make everything different so we can die happily. And they never are except for Emmanuel, except for Jesus, except for the child that Simeon has in his arms, the salvation that God has been preparing beforehand, the light that would lighten the Gentiles, the glory of God's people Israel. Here comes the lion, Father. Oh yes, here he comes. That's the game-changing moment that Simeon has in his hands that marks him off from all of the other individuals we've just been thinking about. So I find myself relating to Simeon. I find myself thinking, I can connect with the idea of thinking this is going to make everything different. But I also recognise that the thing that Simeon, or the one that Simeon held in his hands, genuinely did change the world in a way that nothing else does. Now Simeon knows that the child he's got, he knows the scriptures, so he knows the child in his hands is going to rescue the world. He's going to know, he knows he's going to save Israel. But he knows the scriptures well enough to know that this salvation that he's holding in his hands is going to come through suffering. And that explains this slightly strange comment he makes in verse 34. <laughs> this would not bless me, by the way, if I had just, I don't know, if I just pushed out a baby, which again, is hard for me to imagine, but if I just pushed out a baby and then some guy I don't know said this to me, I would find myself a little bit troubled and offended. But this is what Simeon says to Mary. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many may be revealed. That's not the sort of thing people tend to say in the delivery room or on Facebook when you announce that you've had a baby. But Simeon doesn't want Mary to be unprepared that this wonderful moment of celebration, here he is, the lion father, here he comes. But you need to know, Mary, that the way this child is going to bring salvation to the world is going to involve pain and suffering for him as well as for you. So he tells her the truth. He says, this child is going to be the course of many rising, and in our case, from the dead, literally rising, but he is also going to be opposed and cause many to fall. Some people are going to hate him. Their hearts are going to get exposed, and their hatred will pierce your heart as well like a sword. Mary, and you need to know that. So if you are someone who finds Christmas to be a time of sadness and grief, and many of us do for different reasons, you might find it comforting to know that Mary had the same thing. The light of the world is here, but the sorrows of opposition are still with us. Rescue is here, but it's come through sadness for her. Salvation's here, but it still comes through suffering. So there'll be people here for whom Christmas is the most alone time of the year. I've got good friends for whom that's true. Christmas is really, really hard. They cry more at Christmas than at other times. If you feel alone or rejected at Christmas or grieved or bereaved at this time of year, you are in good company. Mary had to bring up this acute little brown-eyed, presumably you know, dark-haired boy, bring him up, love him, dress him as an elf or whatever she did, the whole time knowing that he was going to suffer 
And so was she because of what he was called to do. So there is in the Christmas story, amidst all of the wonderful celebration, there is a dark side here, isn't there? There is a reality, there is a note of how it is that this child is going to save the world, that's going to bring pain. And there is something of him and her living with you and me in our pain, even in that moment. But praise God, Luke doesn't leave us there. He doesn't finish the story there. He introduces us to this final person in the story, to Anna. He moves from Simeon, Shimeon, which means heard, to Anach, which means favor, grace. Right? So it's not just that God has heard, it's that God is going to show favor. And he introduces us not only to the old man, but to the old woman, the widow who has been bereaved and alone for 60 years. And she has been praying and fasting and worshiping in the temple for decades. But Anna, like Simeon, recognizes the world-changing significance of this child. And she knows that despite what Simeon's just said, that this child is going to save through suffering, he is going to save. He is going to redeem Jerusalem. He is going to bring freedom to the captives. That he represents the grace, the anach, the favor of God in person. And so she, verse 38, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Christmas is a time where the light shines and where you have to recognize that the darkness is still going to oppose it. But ultimately, you have to recognize that the redemption of Jerusalem is coming. And therefore, you start talking to everybody about it. Say, Do you know what God has done in Christ? Do you know? Can you see? Look how glorious he is. That's why they're having a carol services tonight. To invite people into a context where they might once again hear and marvel at the goodness of God in setting creation free. And Anna knows that that's what this baby represents. So you may find Christmas to be a sparkly time of wonder. You may find it a challenging time of tragedy. Or like many of us, you probably find it to be a bit of both. But in the end, the impact of Christmas, the impact of this child who is lifted high by Simeon in his arms, the impact of Christmas brings salvation through the sorrow and redemption after all that waiting. Because the light has come. The salvation has come. The glory has come. We, like Simeon, as his servants, can now depart in peace according to his word. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the miraculous gift of God made flesh in this child who grows up to be the Lord Jesus and to die for our sins, to rise from the dead, to ascend in glory, to come back to judge the living and the dead. We are so amazed. This story never gets tiring for me. I cannot believe what it is that you've done in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for him, and we pray that we would, like this old man and this old woman, depart, even depart today, in peace, according to your word, because our eyes, like theirs, have seen your salvation the light for the Gentiles and the glory for your people Israel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.